Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. First, let's talk about auto crime now and specifically fraudulent auto loans on the rise. Let's check in with Linda Annis, CEO of the Metro Vancouver Crime Stoppers. She also happens to be a Surrey City Councillor. I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Councillor, thanks for coming on. My pleasure, Mike. Okay, very interesting story here about the rise in fraudulent auto loans. What is going on there? Can you explain it? Absolutely. What's happening is crooks are seizing the opportunity during the pandemic to purchase cars online uh, using fraudulent ID. The car is picked up and leaves the country before you know it's even happened, and some poor unsuspecting soul is stuck uh, receiving uh, notices saying that uh, their loan payments are overdue for the car that they didn't even know that they purchased. Wow, where are these cars being purchased? Uh, from many, many dealerships. They're purchased online, uh, and when you go online to purchase a car, you have to obviously you know, provide some identification. It's identification that has been stolen, uh, and so it's not checked uh, until the car is actually delivered, and then they, they produce some fraudulent ID to show the car dealership. Oh, man. And meanwhile, the car is gone. The car is gone, and some yeah. poor suspecting soul's credit rating is, is in trouble uh, just oh. because they've been maybe a little careful with uh, disposing of some of their personal uh, information. Okay, what happens to the cars after these fraudsters uh, manage to pull a stunt like that? Do they then try to flip the car and, and sell it to someone? Generally, they're shipped overseas to a wow. different country in Seoul, so they leave Canada so quickly that uh, the cars generally are never found again. Wow, that's amazing. Speaking to Linda Annis from Metro Vancouver Crime Stoppers here. Wow, how many of those fraudulent cases have we seen in Metro Vancouver here? Well, I know that uh, just Scotiabank alone uh, has had more than $1.5 million worth of fraudulent uh, loans issued uh, for cars that have disappeared uh, that were purchased by crooks. Oh, my goodness. What kind of cars are the most popular for these crooks to target here in this scam? It really has all all types of cars. You know, I hear a lot Range Rovers because they're sold overseas for three times the value of what they're purchased for here. So it's quite a money-making proposition for uh, uh, criminals to undertake. Wow. So they, do they typically go for like a higher-end vehicle, though? Generally, they do, yes. Yeah. You know, something around $80,000 has lots of appeal to uh, the market overseas. And, of course, the more expensive the car is, the more you can make when you ship it uh, offshore. Wow, this is amazing. It's like you got multiple victims in a scam like this, it seems. I mean, you got the car dealerships. You got the banks have been defrauded. You've got, like you said, the people who've had their identities stolen. Uh, they're, they're in trouble as well. How do, how do officials and authorities deal through that? That's a complicated trail of, of crime that they've got to follow. 
Well, I think, first of all, it starts with the consumer. It's incumbent on us all to make sure that we dispose of any personal information in a proper way and that we uh, check our credit rating regularly. We can do it online. It doesn't cost anything. And if you see something that looks suspicious, like your credit rating has taken a turn uh, for the worse and you weren't suspecting that, call the authorities and alert uh, uh, the police that this is happening. I would also say that people should be checking their credit card statements on a regular basis because if your credit card has been compromised in any way and suddenly you see that uh, you know, you've know you got loan payments coming out that you weren't anticipating, call the police or call Crime Stoppers. Wow. Speaking to Linda Annis about the rise in auto fraud here during the COVID-19 pandemic, why do you think it, it's rising? Why is this going up with during the pandemic? So many people are afraid or don't want to uh, go into car dealerships or into any retail store for that matter. So our purchases are much, much more done online now. And things like cars, it's just an easy way for people to do it. I think businesses are a little bit less suspecting that this kind of activity is taking place during the pandemic because they're expecting people to be buying things like cars online more frequently. Right. Amazing. Okay. If anyone listening knows about one of these scams, maybe they've got some inside information on this. Crime Stoppers, I know you're always looking for tips, right? We sure are. We get about 5,000 tips per year, and we'd love to hear from anyone that knows anything about it. They just need to dial 1-800-222-TIPS, or they can leave a message for us uh, on our uh, form on our website. Everything remains anonymous. Okay, fascinating stuff. Thank you very much for coming on today. My pleasure, Mike. All right, we got a close eye south of the border as well as we get closer to Election Day in the United States. President Donald Trump last night held an hour-long rally in Florida. It was his first trip outside of the White House since his COVID-19 diagnosis. Uh, Shortly before the rally, the president's uh, physicians announced that he had tested negative for the virus there was a big crowd there in florida for trump trump was fired up here's what he had to say i went through it now they say i'm immune i can feel i feel so powerful i'll walk into that audience i'll walk in there i'll kiss everyone in that audience (laughs) i'll kiss the guys and the beautiful women and them everybody i'll just give you a big fat kiss (laughs) Okay, Trump ready to give everybody a kiss. He says he's been cured from COVID. Let's check in now with Reggie Cicchini, Washington, D.C., producer and correspondent for Global News. Reggie, it's nice to talk to you again. Good morning. Okay, Trump, he didn't really go in and kiss everybody, did he? And the Secret Service would freak out if he did that. No, he, he definitely did not go and kiss anybody, but uh, he is uh, being kind of called out by health experts for having that rally with zero social distancing, zero masks around, and even having the governor of Florida in attendance with no social distancing, no mask, and going around and shaking people's hands. This all, uh, you know, less than two weeks after President Trump was confirmed COVID positive. Yeah, so what's, this, what's Trump's strategy here? Just say that, look, the, the virus is not that bad. He was able to beat it. He's looking strong. He's, he's looking energetic. Don't, don't shut the country down. Is this his strategy now? Is that the I message? I mean, it's a, 
it's a part of the strategy, but realistically, numbers are the strategy here for President Trump. There are 21 days left in this election campaign. Uh, he's trailing Joe Biden by somewhere between 10 and 17 points nationally and by single-digit numbers in most of the swing states. Uh, and he realizes that time is simply not on his side after having been sidelined uh, for a number of days because of the uh, because of, uh, of, of the health uh, crisis that he was suffering. So he is now simply trying to get back out there, pretend that he didn't have COVID by talking about the fact that he's now quote-unquote immune, even though science doesn't back that up. This is simply a numbers game. Put a, loud, uh, put a lot of people into a crowd and then make it look like you still have all the support that you had before. Yeah, he's looking for that. Get back on that momentum for sure. Here's another clip of Trump from last night telling people to get out and vote. So get out there and vote. Send in your absentee ballot if you've requested one. Be very careful. A lot of shenanigans going on. You see what's happening every day you're reading it. In-person early voting begins next week. So get your friends, get your family, get your neighbors and get out and vote. You have no choice. You have to do it. Hey, so Trump, you got to do it. Reggie, does Trump need a big turnout in this election campaign? Does a big turnout favor him or does it favor the other guy? Well, I mean, look, President Trump needs as much turnout as he can get. Uh, he does not have the support that he had back in 2016, but particularly his support is dwindling in two demographics that he needs more than anything. And that's with suburban housewives, but uh, rather suburban women, but also uh, with the older population across this country who have been fleeing Donald Trump and flocking towards Joe Biden. And COVID-19 may be playing into that, especially with the older population. They are more vulnerable. They see uh, the visual of Donald Trump surrounded by all of these maskless people in a state where these people can then go out and potentially infect somebody else uh, through airborne transmission. This is not doing President Trump any favors when it comes to trying to shore up what eroding support he once had uh, over the last four years. Okay, do you get a little deja vu on this, though, like I do? Because when I listen to the polls, when I watch this campaign, I start thinking like everyone was counting Trump out last time and the polls were wrong. Uh, he keeps talking about that silent majority out there, maybe people who are not being honest with the pollsters, a lot of people who would never admit in polite company to supporting Trump, but then when they get into that voting booth, they vote for the guy. I mean, could this be a replay of that, that maybe people are under, pollsters are under, underestimating Trump's support? Uh, look, it's it's possible there could be some hidden support out there. There also is likely some hidden support out there for Joe Biden, which could potentially put the polls in his way. But this is different than in 2016. In 2016, you had two different challengers for the election uh, because neither of them were incumbents. Now you have an incumbent who's trying to defend his own record, uh, while at the same time saying that everything that's going wrong right now uh, is not under his watch and will miraculously disappear if he's reelected again in 2020. But unlike uh, in 2016, as well, the down-ballot races are also favoring the Democrats. The Senate races are leaning Democrat. Right. The House is leaning more Democrat. That is why uh, these polls are different, and the numbers and the leads that you're seeing for Joe Biden may reflect a more true reality than they did in 2016. Right. Speaking of Global News' correspondent, Reggie Giacchini in Washington, Washington D.C. Speaking of Joe Biden, the Democrat, the Democrat presidential nominee, uh, let me ask you, Reggie, about his campaign, and he continues to be dogged about questions on the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, questions about whether he would pack the court, as it's called, increase the number of justices on the U.S. Supreme Court, try and bring in more liberal judges judges on the high court, highest court in the country. And I, I don't know why he can't answer a straight question on this unless he's just trying to hide hide his own plans. But let me play this for you, because... 
Biden in the past had been pretty clear that he was opposed to this packing of the court. And what I'm going to play here is Biden back in 1993. So this is going back a while. And then just last year as well, where he's talking about how he's against packing the court. So let's go back in time here and listen to Biden. President Roosevelt clearly had the right to send to the United States Senate and the United States Congress a proposal to pack the court. But it was a bonehead idea. It was a terrible, terrible mistake to make. I would not get into court packing. We, we had three justices. Next time around, we lose control. They had three justices. We began to lose any credibility for the court has at all. Okay, I would not get into court packing. That's what he just said last year. 1993 is this bonehead idea, this p- court packing pr- idea. Now he doesn't want to answer the question. When, you, when he's asked by reporters, would you pack the court if you're president? He doesn't want to answer. What's going on there? Well, there could be risk to answering the question one way or another because it could put people uh, on on the wrong side of public opinion. It could, you know, put Joe Biden in a position where it looks like he is now attacking. I think what uh, what his at least campaign is trying to do is make the focus solely on Amy Coney Barrett to say that this is what Republicans are trying to do right now. Say that Republicans are acting in bad faith and then use that to his advantage if he becomes uh, president by saying, "Look, maybe I'm not going to pack the courts," and if if decisions go before the high court and things get overturned if democrats are able to take the senate they retain the house and they get a presidency they can enact new legislation well that will then kind of reshape some of the laws that are being overturned i think uh this is a potential for joe biden here to do forward looking without having to give a definitive answer uh which keeps him in safe territory especially 21 days out well i i don't know i think he looks evasive on it let's uh let me uh, we just got a minute left here reggie amy coney barrett a Trump Supreme Court nominee. Her confirmation hearings continue. Here she is. In every case, I have carefully considered the arguments presented by the parties, discussed the issues with my colleagues on the court, and done my utmost to reach the result required by the law, whatever my own preferences might be. Okay, she seems to be kind of hiding her cards there a little bit on how she would rule on things like abortion, right? What's going on there? Yeah, look, she said, quote-unquote, that she makes no commitment and has made no commitment to the White House, to senators on how she would rule on things like health uh, care and abortion and election right. disputes. She's been evasive on some of her answers. I think this is her kind of safe way of playing it, understanding that no matter what she says, she has the votes on the Republican side, and she's simply trying to just dodge any kind of uh, confrontation or headlines in the lead up okay. to what is likely going to become a nomination and a successful nomination. Reggie, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Okay, let's talk about one of the sectors that's been really hurt badly during the COVID-19 pandemic, and that is the restaurant business. Taking a look at the headline in today's Wall Street Journal, McDonald's and Domino's are booming during coronavirus, while your neighborhood restaurant struggles. More indicators, at least south of the border, that the big box chain restaurants are surviving more effectively during the pandemic than your locally owned independent restaurant. Are we seeing the same phenomenon in Canada and in British Columbia? Let's check in with Ian Tostenson now. He is the president of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Ian, thanks for coming on. Hey, Michael. Good morning. How you doing? I'm doing great. It's always great to have you on. This is a an, an industry that I support. I, I know people in the business. It's been their dream to open up a restaurant. 
and it's just so tough to make a go of it. The, the margins are, are so narrow, and it, for so many people, it's just it's a labor of love to do this. And I know that a lot of restaurants are really struggling right now. Do you think that that article in the Wall Street Journal is correct, that the big box, the big chain restaurants are surviving better and getting through this crisis better than independent restaurants? Well, there is a lot of truth to it. Um, you know, they can spread their pain out over uh, several number of units, um, and so they're a little bit less vulnerable to you know the economics. But you know, the one thing that's uh, you know of critical importance for the chain is that they occupy such important economic space that to landlords and banks, um, they don't want to see them fail. So they'll they'll tend to support them. Um, because you know, consider some of the big restaurants downtown. The last thing that landlord needs is an empty space because they'll never fill that. So how do you keep that restaurant going? Same with the banks. But if you're a small independent restaurant in Vancouver, um, you've got a big problem because yeah. you know if you can't make it and you're at, and you're getting behind, the landlord can easily replace you. They can put a nail salon. They can do whatever and co- convert that small space. So there's no question. You know, number one would be the economies of scale. It's just simply the, the presence that they, uh, the, res- res- the restaurant occupies from a physical and uh, economic point of view. Yeah, I mean, if you take a look at some of the bottom line reports that have come out from some of these big restaurant chains, at least south of the border, if you take a look at like Domino's, for example, reporting double-digit same-store sale increases in, in the third quarter, McDonald's uh, said their sales were up 4.6% in the, in the last quarter. Do these yeah. larger chain operators? What are some of their advantages? Like they got more capital. They got. I, I imagine they got more leverage with their landlords, and that kind of thing. Like, what are some of the advantages for these big chains? Yeah. So the, the Domino's and, and McDonald's experience. Um, there's one curiosity there is they tend to be. Uh, they do a lot of takeout and they do a lot of um, uh, dine or uh, a drive-through, and so you know you see you know you go see a lot of drive-throughs. The ones that are left in Vancouver are packed all the time. So they've got a built-in advantage, but they certainly, from the um, from the chain point of view, though, if you consider, you know, how complex this whole world is right now for them. So you've got, uh, if you're a chain and you've got the infrastructure to help you with HR issues, which are uh, in which have been a lot of HR issues, legal issues, construction issues, financial issues, even just going through, uh, you know, the the complexities of the federal funding programs. They've changed again last week, uh, you know, for rent and wage subsidies. I mean, those take people and sometimes take an account and a lawyer to understand that. So they have all those advantages just because of their sheer size. I mean, an independent restaurant is, you know, probably one uh, one place on the, uh, you know, in a block um, on its own, maybe one shareholder, uh, not several shareholders. Um, the one advantage they do have <clears throat> excuse me, Mike, as an independent, they can pivot very quickly. So they're not tied to, you know, corporate uh, franchise menu concepts and stuff. They can change their menu quite quickly. And the other strength that we're seeing with independents from British Columbia that may not be quite so in the United States because they have a lot more chains, but we're seeing that independents are doing quite well outside of Vancouver um, because people are working and living outside of uh, the city and they aren't tending to support um, their independent restaurants. They get it. They know how important they are to their communities. And so you'll find a lot of independent restaurants in BC outside of the core areas of Vancouver and Victoria 
uh, are, are faring quite well. If you take into account the fact that they've had um, <clears throat> wage subsidy programs, there's a new rent program in place. Um, we're trying to deal now, and I think we've got a solution on delivery fees. So, right. you know, instead of paying 30%, the whole industry paying 15%, which is going to help them make some margin. So we've got a fighting chance here. So it's not all bad for independence, right. but there's certainly more well-recognized and appreciated, I think, in the suburbs. Okay, the delivery aspect is interesting, too, because, of course, so many people want to get home delivery of their meals. They don't want to go out during this pandemic and maybe dine in at a restaurant. So delivery appears to be surging. And I imagine the big chain restaurants have got an advantage there just in their uh, their scale of what they can offer, the ability to absorb those delivery fees. How are the small independent restaurants doing with the increased demand for delivery and including those delivery fees? And it's interesting to see in this election campaign, both the NDP and the Liberals have both promised to bring in a cap on these mm-hmm. food delivery fees for restaurants. Uh, could you comment on that? Like, is that going to, is that going to help? Yeah, so again, the the chain has the advantage of of um, uh, economic advantage to buy the right uh, packaging and all the all those things. You think about doing an actual delivery. There's a lot of packaging involved. They're trying to do it in an environmental way. The independent guy has to go and figure it all himself, find the source of packaging. But assuming we get through that and we're ready to deliver, what we're seeing in British Columbia is, is that, and this is why we've been pushing this issue, is that Skip the Dishes, Uber Eats, and DoorDash have been particularly insensitive to all industries. So they have not been necessarily inclined to do what you think they would do is give breaks to big guys and jam the little guys. They're kind of jamming everybody. Um, and so their their fees are around 30%, whether you're big or small. And they're actually adding on some marketing fees right now. So the, the ability to move 15 points down and cap it for six months. Now, the, 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 the NDP, uh, and I think I agree with them, uh, initially do it voluntarily and if we can't get some satisfaction there then the NDP of you know the government said like we'll move and from a regulation point of view it's been very common in the states to do that and that means that everybody at that point is is participating in trying to keep our industry alive especially in the next six months so right. it's going to make the difference uh, for a lot of small restaurants in particular they can make a few bucks by doing this in one case uh, the difference um, Mike is um, there is a restaurant group in Vancouver. They have two restaurants. This will make the difference between three and four thousand dollars per week uh, to the bottom line, just on savings of the of fifteen percent fees. Wow. Okay. So both the Liberals and the NDP have both promised to impose a fifteen percent cap on fees paid to these food delivery apps. So it would appear, no matter who wins the election, uh, presuming presuming they keep the promise on that one, that's a big one yeah. for the for the restaurant industry. You, I'm yeah, speaking to Ian, Ian Tostenson, BC Restaurant Association. You guys represent the small restaurants and the big restaurants, right? So I'm wondering, like, would you encourage people to support your local mom and pop independent cafe? But you've got to advocate for the big chains too, don't you? Yeah, for sure. I mean. We have no um, no reluctance to say go support the small guy, uh, the small okay. independent guy, because you know the 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 large ones need the independent ones. I mean, it, the, this industry works because it's an it, this eccentric collection of small, big, medium, different types of uh, cuisine. It gets everybody out eating more. So 
Uh, no, the, the chains would never, ever object to us saying, you know, support the independent ones. You go to an independent restaurant, means you're probably likely to go to a chain restaurant as well, too. Um, so, no. I, I mean, we certainly want to see the entire industry on both sides uh, survive. But the chain accounts, they have more marketing muscle, too. You're going to see more of the chain accounts, you know, advertising and doing promotions than you are for the independents. And I think they, they would appreciate our efforts to... Uh, to help it along too. I don't think the um, the chain restaurant environment would envision a, a world that's very healthy if it's all chain restaurants in BC. Ian, thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods market cool. good luck all right time for baldry's beat keith baldry legislative bureau chief for global news big day in the campaign trail keith the liberal election platform has just been released yes it's called restore confidence rebuild bc um a collection of things that largely have been announced before getting rid of the provincial sales tax for a year knocking down to three points the following year ten dollar day daycare uh and on a sliding scale a means test could get up to thirty dollars a day depending on how much uh, you make a lot of emphasis on getting rid of homeless camps um uh and this will be interesting how this plays in some of the uh, municipalities where there are homeless camps and and uh more resources for uh police enforcement law enforcement and of course uh, changing ICBC to allow private insurers to come in so nothing dramatically new but a collection of no. things that have been promised uh, throughout the campaign but you know i have to say is anybody listening uh the, another poll out today from us at global 10 consecutive polls now uh, show that the NDP is hovering around close to 50% of the decided vote and the Liberals are down in the low 30s and okay, this changed. This new poll shows the NDP at like stratospheric levels. They're relatively oh. over history. Fifth, what is it, 52? 52 oh to 34. God, 52? Um, I've never seen them that high. No, it's not inconsistent with a lot of other pollsters. I mean, yeah. some, are, some are as low as 48. Right. Uh, but this is still, we're talking, if these polls hold and if this does reflect the, the popular vote, we're looking at excess, well in excess of 50 seats for the NDP. Okay, let's have a little listen to some of uh, Wilkinson's comments here just made as he releases this election platform. Here he is attacking Horgan for the early election call. We will also prepare legislation related to BC's fixed election date to limit the Premier's ability to manipulate election dates for partisan benefit and ban early elections during provincial emergencies. Okay, so we already have a fixed election law in the province. He's, I guess, promising to put teeth into it. I don't know how you ban an early election because under our system right now, the lieutenant governor is still allowed to call an early election on, yeah, the, on the advice of the premier. How does he get around I'm, that? I'm not sure how he gets around uh, that. <clears throat> I wonder if uh, that ship has sailed, though. I mean, that was an issue at the beginning of the campaign. I think, uh, by and large, people, even who didn't like the fact we're having an election, have, have probably moved on to other things. Yeah, okay, here he is talking about daycare, key issue for a lot of parents mm -hmm. out there. Here's Wilkinson again. We did it with higher education, with 435,000 students in the system using educationplannerbc.ca. And we can do the same thing for daycare operators and families applying for daycare. A single place to apply, a single deposit, no application fees, just the ability to get orderly uh, 
provision of daycare in a process that doesn't drive you crazy with the process itself. Okay, it's describing a process there to streamline the mm-hmm. process for getting daycare. So a single website where any parent could go on, sign up for daycare, no registration fees. I don't know, it might be appealing to a lot of parents who struggle with this. Oh, I think daycare is an important issue in the, in the community. It is ironic, to say the least, that the Liberals derided and uh, mocked the NDP's $10 a day, day daycare plan for years, saying it was unaffordable, unattainable. Now they seem to have embraced the idea, which is great. And they're even citing Quebec as a success story in that news conference today when they were citing Quebec as proof that it was a failure. So uh, it's interesting how daycare has has shifted. Uh, pol- two things have emerged in this pandemic. One is seniors' care yeah. uh, suddenly uh, shone a light like never before because what's going on in long-term care homes? And daycare, suddenly a top priority for political parties. And that's also a priority in the Liberal platform today. There's a lot in there on seniors' care as well, as there is in the NDP platform. So seniors and kids are the new uh, the new mantra for political parties. Okay, this is the first opportunity for reporters to question Wilkinson as well about that story that erupted on the weekend with that leaked video of the Liberal roast for retiring MLA Ralph Sultan the sexist comments that were directed at NDP MLA Bowen Ma. So Wilkinson has said he apologizes to Bowen Ma. He said the comments were inappropriate. Uh, He was embarrassed by them. Um, He thinks it never should have happened. So he's confronting that, but is that two days too late? Well, he's he's turned a one day story into a three day, four day story at a time when there's only you know ten days left in the campaign to campaign to campaign. He's running out of runway here. Uh, he's he's very low in the polls. He's not playing from a position of strength, and that's why I think he had to tackle this in a much more urgent fashion than he did. Who knows where this goes? I noticed looking at the the clipping service we get from the government every day, uh, which has the lineup of every radio show, every TV show, every newspaper, or most papers. And this, that story was saturation coverage. It was no. everywhere yesterday, and Wilkinson was nowhere to be seen. Yeah. One of the problems, I think, for the for the liberals is that this threw them off their strategy and their messaging for, as you said, three days during a critical final home stretch of this campaign, mm-hmm. especially the release of the platform, the run-up to the televised leaders' debate tonight. This is a time when he would hopefully be hoping to try and get some traction and momentum going here in the dash to the finish line, and instead... Uh, he spends two days mm-hmm. not talking uh, in some ways yeah. about it and avoiding it any, and then talking about it again today. So that's a, that's a big problem for him. Any momentum they were achieving, yeah. and the poll suggests there was no momentum, has been derailed because of uh, this controversy. Yeah, yeah. And for women voters, I mean, we talked yesterday how women voters in a lot of polls tend to skew toward the NDP anyway and away from well, the liberals. But if there are any undecided women voters out there... Does that kind of maybe tilt some women voters against them? I just happened to look at the subgroups in our Ipsos poll today. So yeah. amongst women, this is a huge gap. 59% NDP, 28% liberal. Wow. I've never seen a gender gap like that. That yeah. is that is extraordinary. Uh, even men, 46, 39 in favor of the NDP. But in terms of women, and this poll was taken <coughs> um, before, uh, lar- <coughs> excuse me, large, largely before um, this controversy blew up. So you have to figure that gap's even wider now. Right. Okay, tonight's the televised debate, yeah, 630. 630, 6.30, right here on CKNW and Global TV. What are you watching for? I'm going to see how Wilkinson, uh, really, it's a Wilkinson-Horgan situation. First of all, it's not running to be premier. It's two guys who want to be premier. Uh, does Horgan play it too safe? You know, doesn't want to take any chances. He's the front runner. Got a lot most to lose here. Does Wilkinson come on too strong? Does he overreach? Does he step on Horgan's lines? Uh, does he interrupt? Does he look uh, too aggressive or, or uh, unconfident because of how he approaches this? It's going to be. It's going to be. I think Wilkinson's going to be a little more 
to the point that Horgan is. Horgan's going to be, I think, a little rope-a-dope. Okay, Sonia, first to know the Green Party leader in there as well. I think she's performed pretty well during this campaign. A big opportunity for her tonight. Does yep. she, is there any way that she flips the script tonight with a big performance? I'd be surprised if yeah. uh, if she turns uh, the Green Fortunes into into you know huge numbers. But you know they're they're strongest on Vancouver Island, and so I think sh her strategy is going to be to go after Horgan because the NDP is the top party on Vancouver Island by a significant amount. Uh, all polls are showing the NDP's got a, a significant lead, and she her three seats are on Vancouver Island. She wants to hold those seats. Maybe pick up one more, and that means you have to go after Horgan. Wilkinson's sort of an afterthought to her. Uh, Wilkinson speaking right now, taking questions from reporters. A lot of the reporters' questions are not about the platform, though. They're Surprise. about the Bowen Ma tape that came out and the sexist comments there from Liberal MLA Jane Thornthwaite. Wilkinson throwing Thornthwaite under the bus here, for sure. He has said that uh, he was appalled by the comments from Jane Thornthwaite. Uh, he said that he couldn't believe what was coming out of her mouth. Um... He said she made a bit of a fool of herself. Uh, he was he was sitting there on the tape, kind of laughing along with it. But now he's throwing her under the bus. I don't know, man. I this wonder. Is like like if he, if this guy's going down, I mean, he'll be done as leader. Oh yeah. Um, but I wonder if the liberals can hold it together internally as we get yeah. closer to election day. These polls don't help. This incident doesn't help. His his throwing one of his caucus members, as you say, under the bus doesn't help either. Yeah, he says there was a sense that he didn't want to. He was asked why didn't he intervene when this when the comments were being made, and he said he didn't want to ruin the evening for Sultan, who was the guest of honor. But there was a sense of what was of being taken aback at what was coming out of Jane's mouth, <laughs> going after his own MLA there. So yeah, that's getting nasty potentially internally. Let's go to the phone calls. Marcus on the open line. Hi, Marcus. Yeah, hi guys. Uh, just following up on what's what's going on with that uh, uh, the liberal candidate. Um, I, I guess, like a lot of people, we saw her on the television interview. Um, she was very arrogant. The smugness of it. And when the reporter was asked um, if she was going to resign, she said no, defiantly. I think if uh, Wilkinson would have uh, got rid of her immediately, there would be a big change. But more, more importantly, there's a double standard because if it was a man, he'd be gone immediately. Okay, thank you for the call. Speaking of Thornthwaite there, and her, she was asked if she would resign over the mm -hmm. comments, and she said no. Your thoughts? Well, the voters may ultimately determine, will ultimately determine whether she resigns. Is that a close seat up there on the North Shore? It has been. The NDP's yeah. never won there. She won by about 3,300 last time. Yeah. But you've got to figure, given the, the what we've seen here, this I think that riding's in play. When you look at the regional breakdown um, in, in various polls, the NDP has a commanding lead in Metro Vancouver. And I, my writing analysis uh, suggests that it goes beyond the obvious pickups, which would be Vancouver, False Creek, uh, Coquitlam, Burke Mountain, maybe a seat or two in Richmond, Mid Surrey. You start getting, you start looking at writings like Vancouver, Langara, Langley, and, oh my and North Vancouver, it's like liberal Seymour. turf. So yeah. you're, like you're seeing like landslide territory here now. Well, I think the NDP is going to win seats where they've never won before. Yeah. Uh, you know, define landslide. The Liberals are going to still, I think. Well, how about sixty seats? That would mean they'd have to get some some seats that are really out there, like uh, West Vancouver City Sky, for example, would have yeah. to come into play. Parksville Qualicum here on the island, Michelle Stillwell's wins by, you know, forty five hundred. Does that tip? Popular uh, popular liberal MLA, MLA yep, there. Yeah, very popular. Yeah. Um, so I'm not quite there yet, but I certainly think in excess of fifty, if not fifty five. Wow. Okay, six zero four two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight is the number. Star ninety eight ninety eight on your cell. Hi, Doug. Hi, Mike. Hi, Keith. Um, Hi. 
and due to the fact that Wilkinson's ship has got some holes in it and he's grasping at straws, I haven't heard him say anything he wants to get the seniors vote. Uh, I'm on rent subsidy called Safer through BC Housing, and it's uh, quite surprising that somebody hasn't brought it to his attention that if he wants to score some quick points with seniors, bring up Safer for review twice a year and get us a raise that brings us something close to reality in this day and age. Okay, Keith. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, we're we're not balancing the budget anymore, um, and we're seeing campaign platforms from these parties that are loaded with all kinds of goodies and riches that normally would not be there. I mean, a thousand dollar payment to every every family out there. Uh, you know, ten dollar daycare that is now all parties seem to agree on. So, Colin Marys is a good point. There are social programs out there that haven't been funded uh, in terms of increases. Dis- disability payments, for example. I'm, I'm surprised no, no party's gone there because, again, you can increase these programs uh, because you're not trying to balance the budget. Uh, that's gone. He's, he's promised increased spending on seniors' housing mm-hmm. and long-term care facilities, just like the NDP have. They both have a big agenda yep. on long-term care. Maybe that appeals to seniors. I mean, he would. I'm sure he would try to package the sales tax elimination is being beneficial to everyone, including seniors. There's a lot of seniors, of course, not in long-term care, and that's where I think this caller is coming from. 604-280-9898 is the number, star 9898 on your cell. Nikki on the open line, hi. I'm just just backstepping a little bit when the the campaign or this whole election opened up, and I think that the government was working much better in the minority platform because you got to remember the NDP had the Green Party, back them in order to take power away from the Liberals, which were originally voted voted in. So I think um, having an NDP majority, I don't know if that's going to work as well. He's taking way too much credit for doing everything when he's had the Greens and the Liberals supporting him during the whole COVID mm-hmm. uh, pandemic. Okay, thanks for the call. Well, this is one of the primary uh, complaints against this early election call, that it was not needed. They were working well at the legislature. And they were they working cooperated. very non- <coughs> nonpartisan basis. Yes. Certainly at the beginning of the pandemic, that started to fray a little bit when the House was in session. And certainly the Greens did block two bills that the NDP was uh, upset about, but I, I don't think that uh, equated for the need to call an early election. But again, I'm not sure that that anger or frustration of that happening that was evident at the beginning of the campaign is still there today. I think people have just sort of accepted the fact we have this election. Well, one of the things that the NDP insiders and backroom guys were saying at the start of this is they knew Horgan would take heat over this, that he would have to take a lot of lumps for calling this unnecessary election campaign, but they calculated that it would last a few days and then it would be over. Now, I would suggest to you that uh, the pounding went on a little longer than they like because it really stretched into the kind of the second week of the campaign. But then once some of the big promises started to roll roll out, um, there were fewer people talking about the election timing and they were talking more about issues and, and some of the missteps and mistakes and that we've seen on the campaign trail as public well. Public opinion hasn't shifted uh, since before the campaign. So even though that, that frustration was there in, our, in that Ipsos polling for Global, First polls suggested there was about 45% were upset with the election right. call, but they were not going to vote against the NDP as a result. No, so it's, it's, not, a ballot, the, it's the, not a ballot box question. The Liberals wanted it to be a ballot yeah. box issue, and maybe it won't be for them. Let's squeeze in another call. David. Hi, David. Yeah, I don't think, uh, really, unfortunately, it matters what the BC Liberals promise. Um, you know, basically everyone's become a bunch of lefties, in my opinion. <laughs> they're, they're just, <laughs> NDP's going to win, unfortunately. Um 
as a result of someone winning. What do you guys think? Okay, thanks for the call. Well, well, I I think uh, we're less conservative population now. Uh, The millennials uh, generation is well. The the pandemic has changed everything too. Exactly, Uh, people are in favor of of big spending right now. Yeah, Uh, they're not in favor of belt tightening or or austerity. Uh, Mm -hmm. So you do have a shift, and I think you're seeing it nationally with the trouble the Conservative Party uh, federally is having, and I think you're seeing it in uh, in BC as well. There has been a shift. I wouldn't call it lefty, but I would call it centrist left is, I think, a much bigger spot on the political spectrum than it ever has been. And that center-right, I think, has shrunk a bit. 6.30 p.m. And I'll be on afterwards at 8 o'clock on BC1 with our panel and Chris Galis, Sophie Louie, and Richard Zesson. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk ICBC now. is such a crucial election issue in this campaign. Lots of promises out there to reform ICBC. The NDP planning to bring in no-fault auto insurance. That would kick in next year. The Liberals promising to break up ICBC's monopoly, allow private sector insurance companies to compete for your business. You got both of the major parties promising rebate checks. So ICBC saving a lot of money during this pandemic. The NDP and the Liberals both saying you should get a cut of that action. Both promising rebate checks to BC drivers if they're elected. Okay, let's break all of this down with my guest now, Michael Mulligan. He is a lawyer a lawyer with Mulligan Defense Lawyers in Victoria. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Michael, thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, let's start first of all with no-fault auto insurance. I guess the, the idea here is that you cut out the lawyers out of the mix, right? So the, the personal injury lawyers... The NDP has been very critical of them. David Eby has been hammering these lawyers. They're super mad at him. The plan would be you cut them out of the action and you save a lot of money that way. And then your car insurance is cheaper, basically. So people would have cheaper car insurance, right? Well, maybe. (laughs) I mean, the the premise behind uh, having mandatory no fault uh, would be that if you no longer spend any time and money determining who's responsible for uh, an accident, uh, that's going to save both time and money. Uh, There, of course, would be legitimate public policy considerations about uh, whether you want a system which is uh, uh, fault-free and where the uh, dangerous person who crashes into you uh, is going to be treated in exactly the same way as the innocent person who gets hit. Uh, but, you know, that's a, a legitimate public policy debate. There's no doubt uh, you can uh, save some time and money if you no longer care about who's responsible for a, a car accident. Okay. The, do you think it's fair to cut the lawyers out of the mix, or do you think it's fair to, to drivers, let's say they suffer a bad injury, uh, they will no longer be able to sue, except in some limited cases. I mean, the government has said if there's a criminal offense like drunk driving, you would still have access to the courts, but largely it would be settled out of the courts. Do you think the public's going to like that, especially if they're seeing cheaper car insurance? Well, every, everyone, of course, likes things that are cheap, right? Yeah. That's, uh, that's, I think, a given, just like everyone likes the idea that there might be uh, somehow rebate checks coming out of the uh, flaming dumpster fire. That sure right. sounds like it's a popular idea, uh, although uh, I must say shockingly hard to believe given the uh, description of ICBC's financial uh, health uh, not very long ago. Um, but I think whatever model you choose, whether it's a, a no-fault model or, or a system based on determining who's responsible for car accidents, uh, the, the watchword ultimately needs to be fairness. Right, there needs to be uh, a system whereby, if the, you have a dispute with ICBC, 
there can be some fair resolution of it, right, and an independent resolution of it. Uh, currently, of course, uh, that independent uh, review of what ICBC might uh, think of a car accident would occur in court, right, with an independent uh, judge. The uh, One of the really big concerns about the uh, no-fault model that's been proposed is that it would mean that uh, if ICBC made some determination about something, about, uh, you know, how, how hurt somebody was or who, you know, whatever it might be, uh, in most right. cases, your only remedy for uh, reviewing that kind of a decision uh, would be going to this uh, outfit called the Civil Resolution Tribunal. Right, right. Um, and the Civil Resolution Tribunal was set up um, a few years ago, and it was intended to deal with things like minor strata disputes, like, uh, I don't know, you're having a dispute with your strata about the barbecue on the deck or something, right. or very tiny civil claims, you know, and the cons- it's kind of modeled on a, like a PayPal dispute resolution mechanism. And the idea is that, you know, you don't need to have uh, somebody going to court with an independent judge to sort out every, uh, you know, broken toaster oven or barbecue dispute, right? Um, so it's intended to be cheap and fast. Now they'll be dealing with serious car injuries. Yeah, well, that's yeah. one problem, is sort of the seriousness of it. The other yeah. problem is that Unlike judges who are independent of government, right? They're appointed for life on good behavior, right? The people who are making the decisions for the Civil Resolution Tribunal are appointed by the government on short-term contracts of between two and four years, which may or may not be reviewed, or renewed, sorry. Uh, and so you should not have somebody who's a government employee in that way on a short-term, possibly renewable contract deciding a dispute uh, with a uh, government-owned insurance company, uh, because there just isn't the appearance of impartiality and the appearance of fairness. Uh, just like you wouldn't want it if you had a dispute with your uh, neighbor about something, you wouldn't want your neighbor's employee uh, resolving the dispute for you. All right, speaking of Victoria lawyer Michael Mulligan, about some of the changes coming at you at ICBC, we talked, Michael, about no-fault auto insurance. What about this liberal idea break up ICBC's monopoly, let private sector companies compete against ICBC for a piece of the action. I guess the way the Liberals describe it is that competition is a good thing. It would drive down prices. We get result in cheaper auto insurance for people. The NDP say precisely the opposite. If you let the the private companies run wild, they're going to soak people and charge them more. I guess people can decide for themselves what which which version of the truth they believe there. But at the end of the day, do you think that that is an appealing idea? Break up the ICBC monopoly? And if ICBC is so great, if they're the best game in town, they've got nothing to worry about from competition from private companies. Your thoughts? Well, I must say this. It's really a shame that ICBC doesn't operate in a better way than it clearly does. You know, if, yeah. you, if you look at the uh, uh, annual report from ICBC, uh, they will have these uh, uh, statistics that look like uh, they came out of North Korea saying that, uh, you know, 95% of people are satisfied with ICBC. <laughs> uh, hard to know how that, uh, how that would possibly come about. Um, but, you know, on one level, you would think if it was run appropriately, um, you know, surely you should be able to achieve some savings by having a, 
uh, a government insurance agency that's not making a profit, doesn't have to pay income tax, and all of those uh, other things that would go with it. Uh, but I think it must be one of those sort of maladies of a, a public organization like that as it goes along. Uh, it eventually both takes on a life of its own uh, and becomes, to some extent, sort of self-serving. Um, and you saw, for example, one of the biggest complaints about the idea of competition was from the ICBC union talking about how sure. thousands of employees would lose their jobs if there was competition. Right. But the other worry, uh, and we've seen this over the years in various different ways, the ICBC pot of money, which is intended to pay insurance claims, becomes just such a tempting target for governments of whatever stripe it might be. Uh, the NDP criticized the Liberals, saying, hey, they shouldn't have taken money out of that uh, pot of money to help balance the budget. And right. now you've got this uh, sort of grotesque <laughs> uh, outdoing one another about uh, sending out rebate checks to people during an election from this uh, money. Right. You know, if this is genuinely some financial basket case that can't function, uh, the idea of sending out rebate checks is... Uh, just pretty hard to fathom. Well, speaking uh, of speaking of those rebate checks, it was really the liberals who kind of started on that one first, saying that look, people are driving less during the pandemic. There are fewer accidents on our roads and highways as a result. So ICBC is saving money. They pointed to other provinces and other jurisdictions where there have been rebates. There have been COVID nineteen pandemic rebate checks issued to drivers. And the Liberals said ICBC should be doing the same thing. They demanded those rebate checks. It's interesting that at the time, uh, ICBC and the government was saying, well, actually, we've taken a hit because a lot of people have canceled or reduced their insurance during the pandemic. And we've also lost money on the stock market for our investment portfolio. And that was kind of one of the reasons offered to not be cutting these rebate checks. Suddenly, you get into an election campaign and here comes the NDP and they decide after all, well, actually, we will give you a rebate check. So now you've got both parties saying, promising basically cash in your claw. We're going to give you money if you elect us. I mean, should the public believe this stuff? I mean, like you said, it was not that long ago that the dumpster fire was still roaring. Yeah, I mean, there really is a, a trust deficit there, right? Yeah. And you also see this pattern of when there's a change of government in BC, uh, you wind up with, you know, when the Liberals appointed, I think it was Barry Penner to be the chair of the board, the NDP get in, now it's Joey McPhail. Um, and it causes you to be suspicious uh, when you're looking at uh, proposals uh, by ICBC or even when you're reading over information about their financial position. Um, the, the dumpster fire. Uh, analogy came out uh, at a time when ICBC, what happened is ICBC in their financial reports increased uh, the amount that they had attributed to uh, the potential cost of future claims by a couple of billion dollars to make their financial picture look grimmer uh, than it does now, for example, right? Uh, and so when you have an organization that is just so susceptible to political manipulation, um, either for b budget balancing or sending out election checks or whatever it might be, uh, yeah. that may, at the end of the day, be the, the best argument for a, a system where you, you no longer have a, a government-owned monopoly uh, able to do those things. It, it may be that just having an institution like that with a pool of money and a monopoly position is just yeah. too tempting. Uh, and so uh, perhaps the, the best argument for uh, allowing... 
competition there would be to uh, remove the piggy bank uh, that uh, looks so tempting when uh, you think it might help you with an election or might make your balance your budget look balanced or whatever it might be. Uh, it's just uh, what I think started out as a I think a noble idea. Uh, you know, maybe we could save some money if we had some government-owned entity that wasn't making a profit. Uh, seems to have turned into something that's being used uh, for political uh, purposes, uh, frankly, on both sides. Go away! No! No! No, man, that's the video that everybody is talking about. The guy who goes for a jog runs into a mother cougar with her four cubs. I'll tell you what, that mother mountain lion was having none of it. She follows the guy for six heart-pounding minutes. Unbelievable video. If you have not seen this, I mean, this is just flashed all around the world. The guy's name is Kyle Burgess. He was on a run on, on Saturday night in Utah. Says he saw four small animals scampering around on the trail ahead of him. He says at first he didn't realize what they were. He thought maybe they were bobcats. He says he'd seen those before while out for runs. Turns out it was four baby cougars. Then the mother came bounding up behind those baby cougars. She was just having none of this guy around her babies. And that's when this six minute odyssey starts. He said it was the longest six minutes of his life. Have a listen to this. Okay. This is when I die. No. Get the away. Stupid kitty cat. Holy come on, dude. I don't feel like dying today. Ah. Oh, man, it goes on and on from there. At the end, he finally picks up a rock and throws it at the, the mother cougar. It looks, like he, it looks like he hit her, and she just turned around and ran. That was the end of it, and here's, here's what he said at the end. Yeah, get the f*** away from me, face. Oh, damn it. Okay. Yeah, so that just happened. Okay, if you haven't seen the video yet, uh, you're probably one of the few who hasn't, but I encourage you to give me a follow on Twitter. I've posted it there. You can find it easily enough. At Mike Smith News on Twitter, S-M-Y-T-H. At Mike Smith News on Twitter. Just six heart-pounding minutes of this video. This guy being uh, followed by that uh, mother cougar. Okay, let's check in with Bryce Cassavant now. He's a former BC conservation officer. He's got lots of experience on animal management. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. How are you doing, Bryce? Hey, Mike. How's it going? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on. What went through your mind when you watched that video? Leave, leave my babies alone. That's what, she, that's what she's saying. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I mean, you know, first, first problem is uh, we got a mom with some babies there, and then we got a guy from utah uh in the bush taking pictures of her babies and uh yeah she didn't want uh don't take pictures of my babies that's what she was saying yeah because right at the start of the video like a lot of people are sort of concentrating on the the aggression of this animal like she does a lot of sort of false charges at him and it's just terrifying but right at the start of the video you can see those little baby cougar cubs on the trail and he's sort of walking toward them and filming them 
And now he says that he didn't realize, he thought maybe they were bobcats. Um, but w- what would you say, Bryce? Like, if you obviously, if you see a baby uh, animal like that, especially like a cougar, I mean, you got to turn around the other way, right? Yeah, leave, leave the area. Oh, yeah. That's, that's <laughs> the advice. And, uh, you know, especially for uh, cats in this case, mountain lion or cougar, panther, puma, we know them by many different names, but they give birth all year round. So we need to expect wildlife and we need to expect young wildlife as well when we're recreating uh, in the bush, uh, not just in the springtime. And this is a perfect, perfect case. Okay. Do you think that he did the right thing, though, after, this, after the cougar began following him like that and, and obviously being very aggressive? Basically, he walked backwards, kind of keeping eye contact, yelling, I guess trying to puff himself up and look big. Um, you know, I ended up throwing some rocks at her. Is that the right thing to do in a case like that? Yeah. I mean, aside from the fact that you probably shouldn't have had the phone out being approaching <laughs> young, young, uh, wildlife right out of the gate, you know, once the, um, encounter did take place, you know, the correct thing to do is not to turn your back, uh, right, but to right. face, face the cougar, uh, or mountain lion to walk back slowly Uh, talk calmly and firmly and pick up a stick or a rock like happened later in the video probably could have happened a little earlier and um, you know break you know what they call target glancing or target fixation of the animal you got to break that concentration uh, of the cougar and um, yeah in most situations the the animal will leave okay a lot of people even if they do spend a lot of time outdoors uh, they may never see a cougar in the wild just because they're very elusive, elusive creatures. But in, in your experience, have, have, have you have, do you think there we're seeing more encounters between human, uh, humans and cougars and mountain lions? Wildlife generally, we have more people in wildlife habitat than we've ever had before in, in human history. We have uh, urban sprawl and urban expansion. Uh, that is removing wildlife habitat in in areas where and pu- and placing people in areas where we haven't had people before, and especially with the uh, added factor of social media nowadays, you end up with you know air quotations here more sightings or more reports because we have people where there haven't been people and we have a faster ability to communicate it to more people, so it kind of goes viral and takes on these the this life um, of its own. But the message remains the same. When you're outdoors, expect wildlife. We live in British Columbia. Um, Be prepared and be safe. Okay, Bryce, here's what I'll do right now. I'll take a quick break. We'll come back. My guest is Bryce Cassavant, and we're talking about that viral video of the jogger who ran into the cougar mom and her babies there. She was having none of it. She follows the guy for six minutes. Watch the video. Like, it's just unbelievable footage there. Uh, phone me now and tell me, here's what I'd like to know. How many people out there have had a kind of an encounter with a wild animal out there? I would love to hear from you. Have you ever run into a bear or seen a bear, a cougar, any other kind of wild animal? I would love to hear your story. My guest is Bryce Casavant. Let's take your phone calls. Hiya, Jim. Hey, Mike. Uh, yeah, scary video I watched. Well, frightening. Uh, we got a place up in the interior, Region 3. We're kind of remote. My wife and I walk our two Shelties every day when we're up there in the bush or on the trails. 
Uh, we've had numerous um, confrontations, or I don't know what you'd call them, with black bears. Yeah. Uh, the closest one was about 10 to 15 feet away. We were uphill from a stream. Bear didn't hear us. We didn't hear him. Bang, right on the trail, right in front of us. It was scary. We didn't know what to do. I don't think the bear knew what to do, but... Yeah, it happens. It definitely happens. You know what did you, what you did your dogs what did your dogs do when that happened? They didn't even know what to do. They just stood there and looked at him, and it was like, oh. "What is that?" And I, and I I didn't even have a chance to yell yet. And thankfully, the bear just turned around and booted it. Okay, but, that's uh, good. Yeah, that's good to hear. I'm glad that was the ending of the story there, Bryce. What should he have done there when you encounter a black bear? Yeah, again, um, it can often be a surprise uh, to to people to encounter large uh, wildlife in in British Columbia and in the wilds. But it is important to remember to expect wildlife and and be vocal, be make yourself big, be loud, and you know, hopefully, be able to attract the uh, animal's attention and let them know that you're in the area as well. And it's a shared it's a shared space. Yeah. And um, yeah, if if you can control your own actions first and remove yourself from the situation, that usually has the best outcome for everyone. Let's go to Chuck on the open line. Hi, Chuck. Hi. Yeah. Um, cougar stories are few and far between, but I've had many, many, many experiences with bears, uh, including a grizz once when I was uh, firefighting a million years ago above the cusp, and a grizzly bear came running down the hill and jumped off the same log that I was sitting on. Oh man. Uh, but he was concentrating on me. He was getting away from the fire, thankfully. But I think the black bear problem that's making a lot of news about how many have been taken out, uh, I think we should uh, have feeding stations for them up in certain areas of the North Shore. And uh, they can go up there and do their thing. And if they want to come down, if they don't become a problem, let them wander around the neighborhood. Okay. It's like uh, small-town kids go up to the dump to look at the bears at night. Okay, let me get Bryce's take on that. Bryce, what do you think of that? Like feeding stations to keep them away from populated areas does that make sense it's a it's an interesting uh theory it's not the first time i've heard of this um there is a uh, a movement or a thought that uh, providing a, a calorie source for wildlife um, as naturally as possible can help reduce uh human uh negative human encounters and promote yeah. coexistence long-term. Okay, Keith on the open line. Hey, Keith. Thanks, Mike. Um, a lifelong uh, wilderness hiker uh, running into cougars and grizzlies on occasion in the interior, but our scariest one was on Mount Seymour. My son and I were hiking very early in the morning on one of the side trails of the ski hill, and the wind was coming up from behind, or down the hill from us, so this black bear did not smell us he was eating the blueberries we came around the corner surprised him he stood up on the trail all of seven feet tall and fortunately my training and everything i calmly called my son to my side took my pack off carefully slowly started backing up and i held the pack in front of me in case he charged and above my head to make us looking look uh, larger and I could see him sniffing in that, like, where did we come from? And he just took one look at us and then bailed over the, the side of the hill and disappeared down down towards the uh, p- parking lot. And the two of us were standing there shaking because he was literally 
five or six feet away. Um, but I, I think I did all the right things at that point. Keith, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, for, with a black bear, it sounds like you did the right thing for sure. Let's squeeze a in a few. A bear and a beautiful black bear. Thanks for the call, Keith. Chris on the open line. Hi, Chris. Mount Seymour has uh, black bears for sure. We were, we went up there to uh, watch the sun sunrise, and uh, before I knew it, there was a sow and her two cubs, and we had to jump back behind the uh, boulder and just just let them go. It was awesome. Okay, so they didn't bother you? No, 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 not at all. Yeah, they're good to hear. 604-280-9898. When you've got the the babies involved, it gets a little dicey there, and the cubs are involved for sure. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Let's speak to Les on the open line. Hi, Les. Hi. Uh, I, I live in the forest, uh, well, the forest of Nanus uh, Bay area. Uh, on Vancouver Island, so we get uh, uh, black bears and cougars through here on, on a semi-regular basis. Actually, bears just came through a couple of days ago. Um, but what I want to tell you is about an unusual encounter I had a few years ago, and uh, that was with a, uh, a bald eagle. Uh, those things are huge. When they come down <laughs> close, they're as big as a full-grown man, and their wingspan is twice as wide. And I came out swinging a broom as like crazy and came down to try and get my shih tzu. Uh, I did get it to scare off and uh, uh, and fly off through the woods, but it came. I'd never seen one come down that close. It came in sideways through my my orchard, and 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 and, and, and focused on the dog. And I had to come running out from the opposite direction of the wow. dog. Yeah, it was unusual. Uh, but like yeah. I said, we get uh, bears and cougars here all the time. Uh, uh, we've had to have um, uh, the uh, forestry people come out and uh, and and get one okay. cougar, but uh, for the most part. Uh, uh, you know, they're not too bad a problem. Uh, we had one uh, come to the front door and, and scratch on that. I thought it was the cat trying to come in uh, until I saw it out, out the window. Um, and uh, my wife sees bears all the time. Okay. Uh, okay, Les, thank you for that call. Interesting eagle encounter. 